I'm glad to be with you. We're going to be in Colossians um, chapter 1 this morning, picking up where we left off last time I had the privilege to preach here. Colossians 1, verses 15 through 20, it's going to be our main text this morning. And we saw last time through our, our trip in Colossians, um, the, the introduction to Paul's epistle, um, that Paul was telling them of the hope of Christ in which they'd been saved. And we had our, our summary statement, if you will, of the text, that the hope of Christ is the firm and fruitful foundation of a fully pleasing life to God. That the hope of Christ, the expectation of glory with Christ, the union with him in his death and an expectation of life with him because he has been raised, frees us from the cares and concerns of the world, frees us from the passions of our flesh, and allows us to live in an open-handed way that pleases God, that we're not concerned with the nations raging and our, ter- our toils and, and troubles. And we're able to, for the first time, because of Christ in us, please God with our lives. And so it's, it's basically on that foundation that we're going to um, build on this morning. Um, and so we're moving from the introduction to Paul's epistle to um, what we could call the occasion, the, the reason for the writing of the letter, the, the beginning of the body of the letter. And we're going to see here that Paul's letter is in one sense polemical in nature. That means it's written to refute false teaching or heresy um, and to assert something that is true. And that's actually the majority of Paul's writings in the New Testament are written in response to something that was going on in whatever city that he's writing to. And it's to be passed around to all the other churches, but the occasion for his letter is generally false teaching or, or sinful conduct. And this is something, it's a pattern that we really see um, throughout church history, as Paul Wilson was talking about this morning. Um, the different heresies and false teachings and errors that have come into the church contrary to the word of Christ. And our sovereign God has a purpose for those heresies. It's not as if um, he is afraid that his church will one day be tainted beyond repair and that he's going to lose his work upon the earth. He actually allows heresy into the church. It's not that we are to allow heresy to exist in the church, to stay in the church, but he allows it to come into the church for the theological development of the church. And what that means in order to refute false teaching, in order to contradict those who contradict the gospel, you have to dive deep into God's word, his revelation and his truth, to understand it and to defend it. And in this case, God is actually originating truth through Paul. He's, he's giving direct revelation for the Colossians in the inspired words of, of Paul's letter. And so Paul begins his defense of the truth with the truth itself. And that's because the truth is the best polemic. You can identify the inconsistencies in an argument. You can pick apart something that's wrong. But until you know and believe and treasure what is true, any argument that you make against what is false is going to be meaningless or, or empty. And so we learned of Epaphras last time in, in coming to the Colossian church, and he had um, notified Paul of their love in the spirit for one another, um, their faith in Jesus Christ, their love for all the saints, the good works that had come out of the hope that was within them. But Epaphras also notified Paul of something else. And that was the presence of a lot of false teachers creeping into the young Colossian church. And there was really a strange mix 
of, of errors that Paul is going to respond to here. There was um, kind of this mix of Greek philosophy that, that attempted to um, redefine who Jesus was according to unbiblical categories. They, they tried to analogize themselves to God. They, they were reasoning from themselves first. They would say, well, I don't do this. I don't do this with my kids. Why would God discipline his children in this way? Um, we saw Jewish legalism that comes up in almost every church during Paul's time. It was one of his great um, hindrances in the gospel. And it basically asserts that Christ's atonement, Christ's work for you is not enough, that you have to um, engage in all these rituals, that you have to come and obey the law first before you can come to Christ, before Christ would even deign to save you. Um, we also had this kind of early Gnosticism, like we talked about earlier in the equipping hour, that saw the physical as inherently bad, that Christ couldn't have come in the flesh because that would have made him evil. And then we had a, a mix of, of asceticism, denial of all pleasures, because that's what God wants. He wants his children unhappy and buttoned up, straightforward. He doesn't want their good or their joy. And even worship of other angels, as if Christ was just an emanation from God's spirit that was on the par with other angelic beings. And yes, you know, Christ was happy with you, but what about these other angelic beings? You better make sure they're happy with you or they will disqualify your inheritance in Christ. And we, we hear about some of these things and they seem a little far-fetched to us today. We think, well, I don't, I don't see any churches worshiping angels, you know, um, at least not in the direct vicinity of us. I don't see a lot of these, I don't, I don't see this dualistic, you know, body bad, spirit good type thing. These things seem far out, but really the same challenges are ambivalent in our culture today. They're, they're everywhere. Um, they may sound different. They may look a little different. They're probably cooler. They might wear a leather jacket. But they're the same challenges, the same satanic challenges to the deity or the sufficiency, the supremacy of Jesus Christ. It's an attack on his person. His deity while on earth is denied. Sometimes his deity outright is denied. His substitutionary atonement, that's been a big one recently in our culture in the past 20 years or so. His penal substitutionary atonement. Why did Christ die? Not for our sins, to show us he loved us, right? And then we can do with that what we will. His holiness is forgotten. We forget that Jesus will come, as we saw in the equipping hour, to judge the quick and the dead, to judge the living and the dead. But I would say probably you could identify or you could coalesce all of these different errors, all of these different challenges to the person of Christ into one statement. And that's that the most common challenge to the true Christ we see today is just an outright rejection of the biblical Son of God. That there are all manner of, of worldly wisdoms and, and human philosophies of man that say anything about Jesus except that which is true. And really, Jesus becomes the mascot for a thousand conflicting movements and agendas. Everyone wants to claim Jesus for their own. Right? The Republicans claim Jesus for their agenda. The Democrats claim Jesus for their agenda. Right? Jesus is the poster child for Black Lives Matter. Jesus is the poster child for the Confederate flag. And really, false Christs are raised up that look just like the people that created them. And nothing like the Christ who is seated at the right hand of God the Father making intercession for his people. And these Christs can't or won't save without the aid of man. 
Maybe they won't save the people that we hate. Maybe maybe they don't have any problem with the sins that we love. And they cannot or will not judge the world in righteousness. And just in case you, you doubt what I'm talking about, many, many of you may have seen the uh, upcoming um, announcement of the State of Theology Survey by Ligonier Ministries. They put it out every two years. And they actually, it's coming out, I think, September 8th. But they released one statistic early. And that was this, that 30% of today's evangelical Christians, nearly a third of the professing church, say that Jesus was a good teacher, but not God. Evangelical Christians. These are people that have, to fit in this category, you have to affirm that the gospel is needed today, that we need to preach the gospel, that people need salvation, that the Bible is the ultimate guide and authority for our life. They had to answer these questions before they get to this question. And they say, Jesus is a good teacher, but not God. Didn't we put that to bed 15 years ago, 20 years ago, 30 years ago? Apparently not. And while 66% of that same evangelical group would say, no, we disagree with that statement. Jesus is God. 73% of today's modern evangelicals affirm the statement that Jesus is the first and greatest creation of God. Jesus Christ is the first and greatest creation of God. There are so many false conceptions about who Jesus is. Everyone wants the credibility of Jesus, the authority of Jesus, but not many want the real Jesus. And it's in response to some of the same false conceptions of Christ in Colossae that Paul delivers one of the most, one of the most clear and striking descriptions of the true Christ available to us in the Bible. So he starts his defense of the truth, not just with a statement of what the truth is, but who the truth is. And that's because it all must start with Christ. It doesn't matter what else you affirm in Christianity, how good your theology is in other places, how good your anthropology is. You understand the sinfulness of man and everything else. If you get Jesus wrong, you get everything else wrong. If you get his work wrong, you get everything about the gospel wrong. And I would say even more so, if we were to ask that same group today, uh, our same group, we fit into evangelical Christians, by the way. I'm not distancing ourselves from that. Not just, if we were to ask them not just who Jesus is, but what he is like, what, he, what pleases him, what he desires, what he commands, I think that percentage creeps even higher of those who have no understanding of who the true Christ is. And, and that's really the reason why It's the chief reason, I think, that not all who say to him, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. Right? We we focus oftentimes upon the legalism in that. Right? Lord, didn't I perform miracles in your name? Didn't I raise the dead? Didn't I do all these things? Didn't I prophesy? Right? And and we, we say, well, you know, they were just trusting in their works. Yes, but they were trusting in their works because that that's what they thought pleased Jesus Christ. Because they had no understanding of who the true Christ was. And so the question we must ask as we approach the biblical text, the question we all must ask as evangelical Christians, and even just as human beings, is not who is Jesus to you. As if he changes depending on your experiences or your personality or your preferences. The question we must have answered is who is Jesus? And what are we to do with him? And more importantly, what is he to do with us? And so that's where we're going to start this morning. 
in Colossians 1. I'm going to read the text and then we're going to pray to the Lord asking to help us. Starting in verse 15. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created, in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Father, I thank you for this time together. God, the the joy that it is to meet together is, is your people. God, that you have called from death to life, that you have rescued from sin and from judgment. Lord, I pray now that you would help us, God. Give me the grace, Lord. Be with my mind and my mouth. Keep me from error and from empty praise, God. Help me to preach boldly and accurately and joyfully, God. Lord, I pray that you would open our minds, that we would see what is in your word. That you would open our hearts, that we would rejoice in what we find there, God. And that you would humble us, that we would obey what we know and what we learn, what we see. Well, I pray this morning, as in all things, that the name of Christ is exalted and that you are glorified. It's in Jesus' name that I pray. Amen. All right, so last time we had really seen in the first 14 or so verses of Colossians a two-part prayer. Right? Paul gives thanks for the Colossians and then he asks God, he petitions on behalf of the Colossians certain things. And we're going to see another genre, if you will, here within the letter of the text, and that's going to be a hymn. I see many people, many commentators and, and scholars and, and readers of the Bible have, have seen these five verses and they've recognized the format of it. And it actually may have been a hymn that was sung in the early church. But if it's not, it's, it's for sure a doxology. It's a hymn that Paul's writing here. And it's meant to give praise to the Son of God, the Son of God that is the King as, as we saw back in verse 13, it says, He has delivered us, the Father has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of His beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. And so Paul has hinted at our Lord Jesus Christ so far, but it's as if he can't wait any longer. He breaks into praise and worship of this beloved Son of God into whose kingdom we've been transferred, who is our king and our authority, and in whom we have redemption. And this hymn really has two verses, mainly. The first one is Christ's preeminence in creation. And the second one is Christ's preeminence in redemption. And we've already seen here, according to Paul, we who have been saved are not our own authority. We're not our own rulers, right? To be in the kingdom of the beloved son implies that the beloved son is our king. And really, there's, there's no point in the human life that we're free from anyone, right? Freedom in Christ is not autonomy. It, it's not freedom from all influence, right? It's freedom from sin and captivity to Christ. We've not been released. We've been transferred. 
right? We're not just set free, we're captives of war and now subjects of another sovereign. And so it's from the power of Satan to the kingdom of the beloved son. And it's here that Paul begins to tell us who exactly our king is. Firstly, in in verse 15a, he is the image of the invisible God. The image of the invisible God. He has to start here because it's the nature of Christ. He is the icon. It has in the Greek image. It's where we get our word icon from, like a statue. He's the representation of the God who we cannot see. And he is the representation of God who is spirit. And he's the image of God in a few different senses. Firstly, he's the image of God visibly and personally. See, we human beings are also a cone. We're made in the image of God. Same word. We're made in the image of God. Adam and Eve were created male and female in the image of God. And in the image of God, we have our personhood. We have intellect and rationality. We have a will. We have ability to relate to one another. We can think and feel and choose and relate. And Jesus Christ is the acone of God, just as we are the acone in his humanity. See, he's body and soul. He's the full humanity. He's like us in all respects, yet without sin. And this is important. As one early church father said, whatever was not assumed by Christ was not healed. Whatever Jesus Christ did not share in common with us, he did not redeem. He has to be body and soul. He is fully human. And to deny the full humanity of Christ is at once to deny the person of Christ. He is the image of the invisible God. He is actually one of us. He entered time and he walked among us. He felt hunger and thirst and he got tired. He walked from place to place and he got dirty and smelly. He got angry, righteously so. And he felt happiness and sadness and grief and amazement and friendship. He loved his mother and he honored his parents. He aged and he felt pain. He died in his humanity. He was made like us in all respects. See, there is no adhering to the real Jesus without understanding that Jesus is fully like us as human. He is like us in all respects, yet without sin. But Jesus is also the image of God in a way that we are not. He's the image of God morally. He is like us in every respect except for sin. We are not morally like God because He is holy and we're sinful. He is good and we actually are evil. We are lawbreakers and covenant breakers, rebels against the holy God. The image of God that we bear has been marred and corrupted by sin. See, we, we can't feel the, tr- the true emotions of humanity perfectly. We can't relate with one another perfectly. We sure can't relate with God perfectly. We've lost the ability to do so and to be what is essentially fully human. Our thoughts and our emotions and our wills and our bodies are slaves to sin that we love and we've chosen over God. We've rejected our God and put into place another God, ourselves. We've rejected the truth about God and exchanged it for a lie, worshiping creature rather than creator. And because of this, Paul tells us elsewhere that we've become worthless. That there may be inherent dignity according to God's law when it comes to bearing the image of God, but we have given up our value as image bearers of God, in a sense. 
And our foolish, wicked hearts that crave disobedience were darkened. We're incapable of doing anything but sin in our humanity. And so that's why when we think about human nature, when we think about humanity, what, what are we really referring to, right? We're talking about imperfection. We're talking about sinfulness. Well, I, I'm just human, you know? Not so with Jesus. From the moment of his conception to his last breath upon the cross, Jesus never sinned. He never sinned. Not one impure thought or bad attitude or selfish action. He followed the law of his father to the letter and fulfilled the command of God that says, Be holy as I am holy. He lived a perfect life of love and obedience and courage and humility. He chose as he should. He related as he should. He thought as he should. And he felt as he should. He's the only human being that has ever lived that could trust in his own righteousness and goodness in the face of God. He was obedient to death, even death on a cross. Jesus is, in one sense, the true human. He is more human than we are. He is not marred by sin. See, we only, if we, if we look at how humans should act and live, we have nowhere farther to look than the best of us. Jesus Christ, he is fully man. And whereas he is like the first Adam in his personhood, in his ability to relate, in the things that make humans human, he's also better than Adam. He's the second and better Adam in his righteousness. Jesus is the true image of God, the true acon, the true image into which we were created. And it's actually into his image, the image of the Son, that we are being conformed. It says in Romans 8 that those whom God predestined, or those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of the Son. It's in that image that we're being conformed. He is who fully sanctified people will one day become in his image morally. And as Michael Reeves puts it, you cannot know what it actually means to be human without Christ. He is the acon of God. But Jesus is also, he's not only like Adam and better than Adam, He's more than Adam. See, the word here, a cone, image of the invisible God. He is not just in the image of God or an image of God. He is the image of God. He is the image of God essentially. Jesus did not become the image of the invisible God when he took on flesh. He has been the image of God from all eternity and he will be after everything is ended here for all eternity. He shares what God cannot communicate to us. See, God is in one category and we're in a different one. He can't communicate His incommunicable attributes to us. God can't make us truly holy as He is holy. Not, not, in, not in our essence, not in this life. He will make us holy as Christ is holy in our humanity. He will make us morally perfect. But God is altogether different. He is God, He is Creator, and we are creature. He can't give us his full mercy and simplicity and love and righteousness and wrathfulness, his justice and his wisdom, his omnipotence, his omnipresence. Jesus can be that which we could never be. God cannot and would not give us his sovereignty. Jesus has everything that the Father has. He has all power and all authority. And the Son of God is everywhere. 
Hebrews 13.8 says that Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. How many of us can say that? There is no beginning or end to the existence of Jesus. He is instead the beginning and end of all things. He is present in the deepest ocean trench and the farthest corner of the ever-expanding universe. If you descend into the grave, as the psalmist says, he is there. There is nothing that is concealed or removed from the reach of the eternal Son of God. And there's nothing that he does not know. He is the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by his power, Hebrews 1 says. There is no mystery to Jesus. No information or revelation of God the Father that the Son is not privy to. Far more than merely knowing the extent of creation, knowing every bit of available data that could be gathered on this earth, he also knows God perfectly. See, when Hebrews says that he is the radiance of the glory of God, that word is actually an equivalent to wisdom. He is the wisdom of God. And he is the exact imprint of God's nature. Jesus is the perfect knowledge of God. A knowledge so complete and perfect that it actually is a person in his own right. I don't want to get too far down a rabbit trail a little bit. In Jonathan Edwards' conception of the Trinity, he talks about how the Father perfectly knows himself in a way that we can never perfectly know ourselves. See, God knows us perfectly, but he also knows himself perfectly. In all of his infinity, he knows himself perfectly. Everything about himself, he knows. And that knowledge is so perfect and so complete that it is embodied in another person, in Jesus. The Son is, as Jonathan Edwards puts it, the deity generated by God's understanding, having an idea of himself, subsisting in that idea. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. In some sense, as John Piper explains, Jesus is the mirroring forth of God the Father. Just the sunlight reflects the sun. That's Jesus. Jesus knows all there is to know of the Father. And he is the tangible revelation of the invisible God. No one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. That's what the Apostle John tells us. No one has ever seen God. But the only God who is at the Father's side has made him known. That word that John uses there for made him known. Exeomai. It's where we get the word exegesis from. Breaking down, interpreting, expositing. Jesus is the exegesis of God. And Jesus is, and there's really nothing that God is that Jesus is not. There's nothing God has that Jesus lacks. He is the image of the invisible God. And this is, this is something that I think we need to understand because it's something that's important for our understanding of who the true Christ is. I had a pastor a long time ago who tried to make the distinction to me that Jesus was sinless but not perfect. Right? He, he, didn't, he didn't sin, he didn't do anything wrong, but he sure wasn't perfect. I mean, that would be too much. You know, he, he, never, cut, he never cut a board wrong as a carpenter. He never fumbled in his speech. And I, I have to wonder, in one sense, what the cause for making such a distinction is. We don't find that in the Bible. But my, my answer to that, or my question to it would rather be, are you comfortable saying something like that about God the Father? Are you comfortable saying about God the Father, he's sinless but not perfect? 
No, you would never say that to God the Father. Then how dare you say it about the Son of God? We think of Jesus as a a lesser form of God's deity, a nicer form of God's deity. But he is the exact imprint of God. And in fact, Jesus was present for, approved of, and even participated in every action of God in the Old Testament. When God rained down fire upon Sodom and Gomorrah for their sins, for their abominations, for their injustice and their oppression and their homosexuality and the things that they did that God had turned them over to do. It says that the Lord rained fire down from the Lord. Yahweh rained fire down from Yahweh. Two persons of God, one story of God, one act of judgment. That's Jesus raining down fire from the Father upon those who had rebelled against His authority. Christ is by nature the image of the invisible God. You cannot say anything about God the Father in His deity, in His holiness, in any of His attributes that you cannot also say about the Son of God. He is the image of the invisible God in His humanity. He is visible and personal. He's the image of God morally. He is sinless in every way. And he is the image of God, essentially. He is perfect in every way. And because of this, the next statement in the same sentence in verse 15, he is the firstborn of all creation. He's the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. So because Christ is by nature the invisible God, in relation to creation, he is also the firstborn. Now, I think this is an area that there's a lot of confusion about. A lot of those false teachings that take, a, take any opportunity they can to insert anything lesser about Jesus here. And they say, see, firstborn of all creation, right? He's just the first and greatest creation. He's the best of us, sure, but he's like us. He's a creature and not creator. That word there in the Greek is actually prototokos. From the Greek words protos, meaning first, and tokos, coming from um, the word to give birth. And this is a literal rendering of the word. They didn't try to interpret anything here. They left it for us. And it's understood in some passages of the New Testament to literally mean firstborn son, firstborn child. But I would say here that this context makes it impossible. See, he is prototokos of all creation. Literally, prototokos all creation. And the word does not simply refer to the order of birth or of origination, but actually a position of authority, a position of sovereignty, a position of importance and value. See, it's not that Jesus is the first and greatest creation. It's that he is greater than all creation. That's who Jesus is. As the image of the invisible God. And what is the ground for saying this? Because I can just, I can interpret that word any way I want to fit my narrative, right? That's what many people do with Christ. But the ground for this in the next sentence, verse 16, for, because, by him all things were created. Jesus' rightful place of authority over creation is not because he is the best of it, but because he is altogether separate from it. As, as, It calls him in John, which we referenced earlier. He is the monogamous theos, the only God, unique, only begotten, holy, separate 
As God, Jesus is in one category and everything else is in another. Jesus is primary and everything else is secondary. For by him all things were created. I know there's some translations of the Bible out there that say all other things were created. But you can't get that in this description that follows. Visible, or heaven, in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. Every substance and abstract concept, every living creature and every inanimate object, every galaxy and solar system and star and planet, all reason and intelligibility and science, Every throne or dominion or ruler or authority is staked out by Jesus and derives its power and influence from the one who has all authority in heaven and on earth. We don't have time to unpack what each of the thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities is. You know, it's the spiritual realm, but I don't think you have to unpack all of those to understand the sense of what he's getting. It's all his because he created it. That's what you have to know here. He created them all and he owns them. Every authority, every king, every politician, every angelic being, every demon. Jesus is not rivaled by the devil. He created the devil. And he owns the devil. As Isaiah put it so bluntly the other day, the devil is Christ's dog. He's God's dog on a leash. Everything in existence owes its existence to Jesus. And he didn't merely supply the power an authority of the creative work of God, united with the Father, but he personally was the agent of creation. All things were created through him. As John says again in John 1, all things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. See, when God said, let there be, in Genesis 1, Jesus was the one who made it be. He's the one who accomplished it as the divine word. He's the catalyst and the agent of our creation. But he's also the recipient of creation as a gift. All things were made by him, through him, and for him. All things exist for him. And there's in one sense, because he is beloved son of the Father, that creation itself exists because it's an expression of the Father's love for the Son. We're all caught up in the divine relation of the Trinity. That Jesus loves the Father so much that he creates all of the universe to declare the glory of Jesus Christ. And there's nothing in this universe that then exists for its own sake. You exist for Jesus. Not the other way around. See, Jesus is not lonely or desperate. He's not a beggar. As the psalmist says, as the deer pants for the water, so my soul longs for you. That's not Jesus talking to man, that's man talking to God. He does not exist for us. And even those who reject any and all revelation of God in Jesus were created by Jesus, through Jesus, and for Jesus. Jesus is the Lord of every creature and every nation. See, there's no such thing as fear sovereignty when it comes to the Lordship of Christ. You can't separate him. There's no checks and balances to his power. He's not accountable to a voter base or an approval poll. He's not running for election as the Lord of our lives. He is Lord whether we like it or not. 
He is sovereign over politics and science and education and recreation and religion, over the state and the church and the home and each and every autonomous person. As Abraham Kuyper famously said, there is not a square inch in the whole domain of our human existence over which Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not cry, Mine. Billions of stars and planets and worlds and climates and habitats and mankind can only live on a speck of it. We live on a speck of dust in the grand scheme of the universe. And there are places in our own world that we cannot live in, that are not hospitable to us. There are places in the universe that we will never reach and sites that we will never see. Climates even here that we cannot live in. And so it would be ridiculous as a creature who lives on this small planet called Earth to think that all of our fellow creation exists for us. We're given dominion over the Earth as image bearers of God, sure, but it is not for us. It does not exist for us. We're groundskeepers of the Earth that exists for Christ. We, along with the rest of creation, exist for Jesus. And just in case the point is not understood in all of its entirety, and really beautiful simplicity, he created it, it's all his, it all exists for him. Paul restates it ultimately in verse 17. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. Jesus existed infinitely long before the creation of the universe. And it's only at his good and sovereign pleasure that it continues to exist. He sustains all things. In him we live and move and have our being, Paul says in Acts. See, your molecular adhesion is up to Jesus. If Jesus willed it, every single one of us would disintegrate into the particles and atoms that we are comprised of. The earth keeps its orbit around a sun that continues to burn because Jesus wills it. The seasons continue to change. The sun continues to set in the west and rise in the east every morning because of the common grace of our Lord. He clothes the flowers of the field and feeds the sparrows. He appointed the storm and the fish and the plant and the worm in the book of Jonah. See, there's nothing too big to escape his authority, and there's nothing too small to escape his notice. He is sovereign over all, and he continues to grant life and breath and everything to a race of humanity that is wicked and deplorable and ungrateful. He knows the hearts of men, and yet he lets them live, as the psalm says. He brings rain upon the just and the unjust. See, Jesus was overseeing the synapses and the mental processes of the Pharisees as they were scheming against him. He fueled the muscles of the soldiers that whipped him and drove the nails into his hands. And he directed even the dice that were cast for his garments. See, whatever level of comprehension you have of the sovereignty of God and the sovereignty of Jesus Christ, it's not enough. And if you put limits on it at any point, you are gravely mistaken. See, one of the things that makes me tremble, not only getting up here in front of a full church, but coming and preaching this text, is that I am incapable of overstating it. I can only understate what is true about Jesus Christ. And even in this verse so far, we've only dipped our toes in the water of the ocean of God's sovereignty, of the sovereign lordship of Jesus Christ that makes him prototokos over all creation. 
And that Jesus is the prototokos over all creation is just the first verse of the hymn that Paul is singing. And this hymn is progressive. It builds on itself. It's going toward a climax. And it's no mistake here in the discussion of Jesus' worth and power that what comes next as even greater grounds for his praise is his relationship to the church. We see here in verse 18, and he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead. It shouldn't be lost on us here that the title head of the church is a loftier title than creator of the universe. It's something more impressive, something that's supposed to strike us as even greater than him saying, let there be light. You are witnessing a miracle right now. You sit in an assembly of miracles. The people to your right and to your left are miracles of God and miracles of Christ. Because you and I were dead in our trespasses and sin and the passions of the flesh in which we once walked. We had hearts of stone and deaf ears and blind eyes. We had refused to acknowledge what was plain in all creation around us. Paul tells us in Romans 1 that the things that can be known about God are plainly perceived in the things that were made. The things that Jesus made. His eternal power and his divine nature. His Role, his standing as prototokos. And we also understood the image of Christ morally. We understood that morality of God. We knew what he wanted. He wrote his law, his good law that proceeds from his own character. He wrote that upon our hearts. And our own consciences bear witness to us that we were wicked people. We were lawbreakers. See, sinners aren't merely good people that have missed the mark. As if they're trying to aim and they've just barely missed it. As Randy Tyler says oftentimes, they're not even aiming at the right target. It's a willful moving of your aim to a different objective. We didn't love righteousness. We love sin. And that's what we aim for and we hit the mark every time. We rejected the truth about God and exchanged it for a lie. We love to disobey and to blaspheme and to abuse our own bodies and the bodies of other people. We worship creatures rather than creator and we became worthless and our foolish hearts were darkened, as we said earlier. We became like animals, like beasts toward God, as Psalm 73 says, acting on every sinful impulse that we had. Without restraint, except for God's restraint on our sinful actions. And we could expect nothing from God except his just judgment in hell forever. Because that's the natural state of every human being apart from Christ that has ever lived. It doesn't matter how old or how young, how smart or dumb, cultured, uncultured, educated, ignorant, slave-free, racist, or woke. We all stand before God as sinners. And we have to pay account for that. And we could expect nothing from Jesus except judgment. I didn't say that wrong. I shouldn't have said the Father, though the Father will judge us in our sin. I said the Son, do we know that Jesus has wrath? That Jesus will judge the living and the dead. That Jesus is actually the one who condemns sinners on the final day. And he himself was angry at us. Not just at our sin, but us. We're the criminals. Right? You can't separate our sin from ourselves because we were sin. 
We were his enemies, but Christ is exalted here as the head of the church. And it's meant to strike us here that he is head of the church. Because there shouldn't be a church. There shouldn't be any human beings on earth that pay homage to God, that love Christ, that obey Christ. And Christ is also the beginning, the prototokos from the dead. He's the beginning of all things in creation and the beginning of the salvation of his people. And so just as creation was a loving gift from the Father to the Son, so were his people. So were the redeemed. Jesus took on flesh to purchase and redeem those whom the Father had given him in love. Jesus tells us in in the Gospel of John, um, you don't have to turn with me, it's in chapter 6, starting in verse 37. He says, all that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life. And I will raise him up on the last day. Jesus Christ, the creator of the world, he takes on the frame of a creature. The acone of God in this humanity. And fulfills the law of God with his perfect life as God and man. And he lays down his life for his sheep. And in doing so, he takes on our sin and he absorbs the terror of God's wrath that we could expect. He died for the sins of his people on the cross, even while we were his enemies. But he didn't just make atonement. He finished what he started. Because he had, as the sovereign Lord, the prototokos of all creation, the giver of life and the bringer of death, he had the power to lay down his life and take it back up again. And he becomes prototokos from the dead. Same word, but used in a different way. See, literally in the Greek, the last time, it's prototokos, all creation, but there's a procession that comes from here. Prototokos at nekros, from the dead. He's not just prototokos of the dead. He's not greater than the dead. He participates in this group. He is prototokos from the dead. First from the dead. And he is the first one to rise from the dead in glory. Incorruptible. And so this might confuse us here because we've seen a lot of resurrections in the biblical history up to this point. Elijah raised the widow's son and Jesus raised Jairus' daughter and Lazarus. Peter raised Dorcas. The dead spilled out of their graves when Jesus died upon the cross and walked into the city. And many, many more. But compared to Jesus' resurrection, all these resurrections are merely resuscitations. Because Lazarus died again. Jairus' daughter died again. They all died again. They're not walking among us today. But Jesus has risen and he will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. He forever defeated sin and death for those whom the Father had given him. And it's because of his love. What love he showed us that while we were still sinners, while we hated him, he chose to love us. Why would he do such a thing? You might say that I've already told you. He he loves us, right? And we, we get that in Ephesians. Because of the great love with which he loved us, he died for us. And he rose again. 
And that's a true statement here. And that's why the church is placed as greater than creation, right? Jesus loves his church. He has shown love for his church. He loves his people. And we should love the church. You surely can't hate the church and love Christ. You can't attack his body and be okay with his head. And that's something that we see today in really any circle of evangelical Christianity, right? The church is red meat or a punching bag for criticism. It's an easy way to lift yourself up as more mature than you are, right? As more knowledgeable than you are. It's so easy to make sweeping statements about the church and say, well, the church is this. The church needs to do this. The church is impure. And everyone does it from heretics to reform folks, right? It's just kind of the natural thing. And whenever we see something foolish going on, we say, well, you know, it's the church. But we should be so cautious with how we speak about the church. See, because you can't talk about the church like that and be on good terms with Christ. It's his body and his bride. If you were constantly deriding and criticizing and mocking my wife, you would not be on good terms with me. In fact, I would find you. Even more, if you were abusing or manipulating my bride, we would have real problems. And so it is with Jesus Christ. We don't tolerate that in our own mouths, and we sure don't tolerate it in people that are among us, that they are abusing the church. So we should care more for the church than for those that cry foul and cry victim when church discipline is placed upon them. Jesus loves the church. It's not low-hanging fruit. And the church is much better off than you imagine it to be. Those who are truly attached to the head of Christ are doing fine, I assure you. They have God's spirit. They're being sanctified. And God will protect them. And he'll bring them out of whatever place they're in. And he will work all things for their good. They're fine. I promise you. And you need to be building up the church. Encouraging the church. But you also can't walk your way through this text and say that's the primary motivator here. Christ's great love for his people is a motivator for his death. But why does he love his people? What's the motivation for his love? As true as it is and incredible it is, why would Christ willingly endure the sufferings of creaturely existence and undergo the horrors of the cross and the wrath of God? For that matter, why would he even create the world and endure with divine patience those who blaspheme his name and abuse his creation and corrupt his good creation with sin? Let's finish verse 18. It says, He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead. That, here's a conjunction here, a purpose clause. And I would say it's one of, if not the most important purpose clause in the Bible. That in everything, He might be preeminent. Here we have the primary motivator for everything that Jesus does and everything that Jesus is. This is one of the most important purpose clauses that we could ever come across in the Word of God. Creation, incarnation, redemption, all for the purpose of what? The preeminence of Christ. That Christ would be seen and savored as valuable, as precious, as worthy, as top, as head. All of these titles that they would be seen and acknowledged. That's the purpose for anything that God has ever done in human history. That's the purpose for everything that's ever happened in human history. Every century 
Every person, every heresy, every tragedy and triumph, every situation, every trial, every sin, every sinner punished, every saint saved. God is the giver of everything that is good. And while he is not the author of sin or of evil, he has a good purpose for every single ounce of it. God is working all things, all things for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose And most importantly, for the praise of his glorious grace. For the praise of the glorious grace in the person of Jesus Christ. Why did Jesus willingly endure the cross? Philippians tells us it's for the joy set before him. Is that reunion with his people? Sure, you can put that in there. Is that being glorified and raised in a new body? You can put that in there as well. Those are good things that he expected But the joy set before him was not ultimately those things. It's that he would be raised and seated at the right hand of God the Father and given a name that is above every name. Why did he humble himself? Because he who humbles himself will be exalted. Jesus gives that in a teaching about how we are to live, but he's speaking of himself. No one has ever humbled himself more than Jesus. He who is by very nature God, the exact imprint of his nature that did not consider equality with God something to be grasped. But he took on the form of a servant. He emptied himself, humbled himself. And because no one has ever humbled himself more than Jesus, no one could ever be more exalted than Jesus. That's the whole point of salvation, according to Ephesians 1. His purposes for the salvation of his people, his salvation of those people, every spiritual blessing in Jesus Christ that is ours, it's all for the praise of his glorious grace. Constantly throughout the prophets in the Old Testament, God says this when he's rescuing his people, not for your sake, Israel, do I do this, but for my own name's sake. Not for your sake. I don't do this to lift up you. I do this to lift up me. And we may think that that's narcissistic, but it only shows that you haven't been paying attention throughout the the entirety of this hymn up to this point. Our earthly love, I think this is our problem here, our earthly love is all about magnifying the object of the love, right? We sing love songs, it's lifting up the woman, right? When we talk about how much we love something, it's meant to exalt the object of that love. And that's not an untrue conception of of a type of love. But God's love for us, his holy and righteous and faithful and predetermined and perfect love is meant to magnify the lover, not the loved. It's meant to magnify the head and not the body. Christ and not the church. He loves us with a great and a real love. A love incomprehensible to us that we've never experienced and can never experience from anyone else. But he loves us for the sake of his own name. That he would be preeminent. Why is this good? Is this still not narcissistic? He loves us so he would be lifted up? Why should Jesus be preeminent? Why should he be the goal of all things? Why should all things be created for him? Who is he? In verse 19 it says, For in him, in Christ, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. 
All the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Christ does not claim glory that is not his due. In fact, because he is the fullness of God, he is the only one to whom glory is due. We have to understand something here. God did not do these things so that he would become preeminent. God did not love us in Christ so that he would become loving. God does not judge sinners so that he would become just or that he would become wrathful. God didn't improve when he created the world. God didn't get better throughout the course of human history. God will not get better when he finally redeems all the elect and restores everything to peace. God's attributes already existed before everything else. His holiness and his love and his wrath and his justice, his aseity, his incommunicable attributes, everything was done so that God could demonstrate those attributes. So that he would have an outlet, a a canvas for his holiness and his justice and his love and his righteousness. It doesn't make him more glorious than he is. The purpose of so that Christ would be preeminent is so that his pre-existing preeminence would be acknowledged and seen. That the glory of Jesus Christ would fill the earth as waters cover the sea. And the gospel that we've talked about, this hope of Christ, this word of truth, that frees us to live lives that are pleasing to God, it also reveals to us the purpose of all things. As he says later in Colossians, the mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints. The purpose for everything that we see that exists is Jesus Christ, that he would be seen for who he actually is. God is passionate for his own glory. And he loves us to demonstrate that glory. He created the world to demonstrate that glory. In one sense, creation is just the necessary, the gloriously necessary precondition for redemption. No creation, no redemption, right? He wasn't surprised by the Garden of Eden. He wasn't surprised by the corruption of everything. Romans 8 says that he subjected the world to futility in hope. Who has it subjected the world to futility, to corruption? God. God subjected the earth to futility in order that redemption would occur. Redemption is the plan before all time. Creation is the first step of that plan. I have to ask you here, because the purpose of everything can only rightly be the preeminence of Christ, the story of everything, does that satisfy you? Is that answer enough for you? Does it delight you? Because if Jesus' glory does not satisfy you, nothing else will. It satisfies God. Does it satisfy you? Martin Luther once asked, For what is the gospel but a declaring of the glory of God and his work? And as John Piper tells us, The best gift of the gospel is not the forgiveness of sins. The best gift of the gospel is not the imputed righteousness of Jesus Christ. The best gift of the gospel is not even eternal life. The best gift of the gospel is seeing and savoring the supremacy of Jesus Christ himself. 
That is what fills us. That is what fulfills us. And that's why his work of redemption is not only for us, but it's in us. It's not only external, but it's internal. Because if he died and rose in glory, but our hearts were still made of stone, and our eyes were still blinded and deafened, it would be a futile demonstration of his glory, of his preeminence. There would be no one to acknowledge his preeminence and bask in his glory among humankind. We would just suppress this revelation of the glory of Jesus Christ, just as we had the revelation of the glory of Jesus Christ in creation. And that's why Jesus did not make provision for salvation. If only we would wake up and recognize it. He didn't take a calculated risk, hoping that we would see what he did and acknowledge it. His love is not reckless, purposeless, a gamble. He does not make provision for salvation. He accomplishes salvation. His glory is not left up to us. It's left for us as our highest good. It's our hope and our joy and our peace, our inheritance. That's the hope that we long for. And it's his greatest gift that we would be satisfied with who Jesus is. All things are done so that his fullness, his preeminence, would be experienced and acknowledged, not acquired. And it's from his fullness, Colossians 2 says, that we are filled. Turn with me there real quick. Starting in verse 9. For in him, in Christ, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. And you have been filled in him who is the head of all rule and authority. In him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of death that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. And this is the work of Christ in us for his own preeminence. He fills us from his own fullness. We're given new hearts. He rips that heart of stone that hates God and hates other people out of our chest, and he gives us a heart of flesh that beats for the glory of Jesus Christ. Our minds are renewed in knowledge from Christ's treasury, where he says early in chapter 2 that it's in Christ that all the riches of wisdom and knowledge are found. We are made alive in Christ. He gives us a taste for himself, a taste for Jesus, and we lose taste for our sin. We are given faith, and through faith we become partakers in the baptism of his death. We die to sin, and we die to the penalty of the law. And we become heirs of his resurrection and life. If you have died with him, you will also live with him, Paul tells us in Romans 6. Jesus is not a means to an end in our salvation. He is the source, and the means, and the end. He is the source of our faith 
and our righteousness and our good works and our new hearts and our perseverance and our open eyes. And He is the means by which we come to God, by which we have peace with God through the blood of His cross. And He is the end of our salvation. That we would one day be presented as a bride, spotless and perfect, to our husband, the Lord Jesus Christ. From Him and through Him and to Him are all things, Paul says in Romans 11. That's why he also says, to Him be the glory forever. Amen. And it's here in our reconciliation, as we go back to Colossians 1, that God begins the reconciliation of everything else. God gives us the message of reconciliation for the rest of the redeemed. And, he, and we seek new worshipers to sing that same hymn of Christ's preeminence. And as we saw during our last time in Colossians, our gospel proclamation is not fueled by a hope for the acceptance of God, but from the acceptance of Christ. It's fueled by the hope that we have already received and the certainty of the salvation of God's people. But there's another possible misunderstanding here in this text. We've talked about all things repeatedly up to this point, in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, all things. And here he says that through Christ, God will reconcile to himself all things. Reconcile, made friends, made peaceful, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. And this is something, this is a text that's often used for one more Christ, right? The universalistic Christ. The ultra nice Christ who would never punish sin. Who would never say, depart from me. He must save everything. Or otherwise, he's wasting his blood, right? The clear testimony of the scripture is against universalism. There will be those to whom Christ says, depart from me. And if we accept that as scripture, or this as scripture, we must accept them both. And hold them in tension and understand the difference between the two. The devil and his demons will also be punished. Hell is prepared for them. And so I think what this is talking about here is not universal redemption, but comprehensive redemption. The reconciliation that is promised is the establishment of peace. He is making peace by the blood of his cross. The restoration of the peaceful world order. Not the, not the scary end times new world order, but the order that God had originally created, glorified under his sovereign lordship. And it does mean salvation for God's people. We would see that starting in verse 21 through 23, the reconciliation of those who were enemies to God that are now God's friends. But it also means something else. It means condemnation for his enemies. See, Second Peter 3.7 tells us that the heavens and earth will be consumed in fire. That they're prepared for fire. But we're also told in Revelation that there will be a new heavens and a new earth. A renewed heavens and new earth. They will be consumed in fire and remade in glory. God's plan is not for believers to escape from this earth and leave everything else behind. He doesn't have a rocket ship prepared for us that we have to jump on and he'll take us away from here and we can live the rest of our days in heaven. His plan is for the meek to inherit the earth. His plan is to build a strong nation from all nations and that they will rule with Christ forever. 
on earth, physically, in renewed bodies, just as Christ has been raised. And I want us, I want us to see a picture of what this reconciliation of all things looks like. Turn with me to Revelation chapter 21. Starting in verse 1 of John's vision in chapter 21. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, a new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them. And they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. And he said, write this down for the words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from them springs of the water of life without payment. The one who conquers will have this heritage and I will be his God and he will be my son. But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. Later on in verses 22 through 26, it says, I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty and the Lamb. And the city has no need of a sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives its light, and its lamp is the Lamb. By its light all the nations will walk, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it, and its gates will never be shut by day, and there will be no night there. He is coming to establish peace for his people. But for those who are his enemies, there will be no peace. He will make peace, as in he will end their rebellion. See, there's no refuge from Jesus. There is only refuge in Jesus. You are either baptized into his death, or you will be baptized by fire in his judgment. He is coming to make all things new, and he will purge the evil from the world. He is our peace, and there will be peace for his glory, for his name's sake. That's the climax of the hymn. What a glorious revelation of the supremacy of Christ in all things. And we could end here. right? We've seen the theological and Christological realities that Paul is wanting to convey, but we dare not leave this text unapplied. How could we leave unapplied the purpose for all things? Surely this has to have an effect on our everyday. Surely this must change the way that we live. And so what are we to take away from this incredible description of the true Christ? What's Paul's intended reaction here? I would say, what's the intended reaction of any hymn? Praise, worship, thanksgiving. That Christ would be worshipped and idolatry would be disposed of. Your recognition of the glory of Jesus Christ in all things should fill you with delight and should satisfy you. And humble you 
and rearrange your priorities and direct your lifestyle and captivate your thoughts and change the way that you pray and the way that you look at and look to Jesus and the way you treat his body, the way you treat your own body. And it should fill you with hatred for the things that steal Christ's preeminence in your life. See, Paul is singing of the preeminence of Christ to the Colossians so that Christ would be preeminent to the Colossians. Because to deny the preeminence of Christ is to deny Christ. He is the fullness of God, the firstborn of all creation, the head of the church, the firstborn from the dead. His nature is to be preeminent. He can only be preeminent. You can't add a little bit of Jesus to your life. He cannot be lesser. He cannot be milder or tamer or more domestic or less offensive. He can't be less righteous. He won't be less holy or less sovereign. He can only be preeminent to everything. And if he is not preeminent to you, if you do not acknowledge his preeminence, rejoice in his preeminence. If this bores you, you are not in him. You are not in him. The purpose of redemption is so that you would see this and acknowledge it and treasure it and rejoice in it. He suffers no rivals to his glory. He needs no supplement to his salvation. He is enough. See, the supremacy of Christ here is mentioned in order that the sufficiency of Christ would be known. That he is enough for us. He is always enough for us. That we could lose everything else. We could count everything else as loss. And he would be enough for us. How could the Christians in Hebrews joyfully walk away from the burning of their property while they're going to visit the Christians in prison? They've identified themselves. They've outed themselves as Christ's people. And their homes are burning behind them. And they're singing praise to God as they go to visit and to join their fellow believers in prison. They didn't care for the things of this world. They didn't dwell on them. They didn't consume their thoughts or their time. And we will always be consigned to rebellion and foolishness and arrogance and ignorance and dissatisfaction and insignificance if we reject what the Bible is saying about Christ here. If we search for fresh revelation when the fullness of God's revelation in Christ is known. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But now God has spoken to us through his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things. God has nothing better to say to us than what is in Jesus. He has nothing more to give us than what is in Jesus. I've heard this a lot in my early Christian life. In a very different background from this. Father, we want all that you have. We want all that you have. And the whole time, this is sitting neglected. And Christ is sitting in the back seat. All that he has is in Christ. And if that is not enough for us, nothing will ever be enough for us. Augustine rightly said that Christ is not valued at all unless he is valued above all. So if you're not wholly satisfied with all that God is for you in Christ Jesus, God is nothing for you but judgment. The very essence of sin is dissatisfaction with God and a carving out of broken cisterns, wells that hold no water to try to slake your thirst in something else instead of drinking deep from the fountain of living water that is Jesus Christ. And I would say further 
that Augustine's argument can be strengthened and say that Christ, unless Christ is valued alone, he is not valued at all. Unless he is valued alone, he is not valued at all. I was um, preaching the gospel outside of a club in Oklahoma City about a month ago. And I get into a conversation with a young guy. and um, We can call his name Zach. Um, and he's, he's about my age. And he shows me his wedding ring. And he tells me that he's married. He's been married for about eight or nine months. And then he tells me what he's there to do. And that's to sleep with as many women as he can that night. As many that will have him. Right? He says, oh, well, but I, I love my wife. I go home and I love my wife so well. I take care of her. I just have to go do this sometimes. And I said, Zach, you don't love your wife. He goes, how could you say that? I've just told you how much I can love my wife. I said, I'm married too, and the nature of marriage is that you love your wife alone. Not that you love her more than other women, but you love her to the exclusion of all other women. But how often do we treat Christ that way? I love Christ above all, so I value him, right? I love him more than my pornography, right? I love him more than my prayerlessness. I love him more than my lying. I love him more than my dishonesty and my stealing and my abuse of others. I love him more, right? I'm only human. But unless you love Christ alone, to the exclusion of everything else that would steal your love for Christ, you do not love him at all. You don't. See, the doctrine of sola fide, right? Faith alone, that was central to the Reformation, and we love talking about that here. But the doctrine of solus Christus, Christ alone, that's central to reality. That's central to everything in existence. And we love to pay attention to the first one while we kind of neglect the second one in our lives. But how can I say that we can only love Christ alone? Aren't we to love the church? I'm supposed to love my wife and our families and our neighbors? Absolutely we are. But we cannot love anything else rightly until we love Jesus Christ. See, the goal of our sanctification is to think the thoughts of Christ and to do the works of Christ and to love the love of Christ. We love Christ and then we love the things that Christ loves with his love. So unless we love him alone, first, ultimately, we set him apart as holy in our minds. We don't love anything else and we don't love Christ. That's what it means to love Christ alone. He fills us in him. And we lose all love for the things of the world. We lose all love for our sin. And we gain an incredible amount of love for the things that Christ also loves. We no longer waste our days on entertainment and unhealthy relationships and careers, making those things things the aim of our existence, and essentially exalting ourselves as preeminent. Instead, we feast on all that God has for us in Jesus Christ. We live in the Bible. We devote ourselves to time with God in prayer. We do good works because we are so satisfied in Jesus Christ. Not to gain his approval or acceptance, but because we are so pleased with him, because he's so pleased with us. We preach the gospel of Christ. We aren't ashamed of his word or anything that he's ever said. And we share his desire for the salvation of his people. Our relationships and our work and our recreation and our service only become meaningful when they're placed in the context of doing them for the glory and satisfaction of Jesus Christ. And so the natural inclination of our sinful flesh, of your sinful flesh, is going to be to pay lip service to the glories of this text. Maybe come up and tell me how good that was afterward. And then you will go and you will do what you always do. 
You will seek pleasure in other things. You will live for the things that you really love, which is not Christ. And you will live in general as if your life and your schedule and your time was all about you. And you'll grow weary and heavy laden and sick. Don't do that. Or you might feel guilty and you might spend the week reading the Bible as much as you can, spending all this time in prayer, even sharing the gospel with someone to make yourself feel better about yourself. You'll struggle with your sin, which means you won't repent from it. And you will forget all about how precious Jesus is while you try to make yourself worthy of his love. You won't experience any satisfaction in him and you will only increase in your own self-righteousness and pride. Don't do that. Turn to Christ. Trust in his goodness and his mercy. Fear his holiness and his judgment on sin. Plead for his acceptance and forgiveness. Turn from your vain idols and serve the living and true God. Enter his rest. In God's presence, there is fullness of joy. At his right hand are pleasures forevermore. Why? Why at his right hand? Who is seated at his right hand? It's Christ. The aim of all things is the glory of Jesus Christ and the satisfaction of his people in him alone. I love the third verse of one of my favorite hymns. It says, Riches I heed not, nor man's empty praise. Thou, mine inheritance, now and always. Thou and thou only, first in my heart. High King of heaven, my treasure, thou art. Please bow with me. Father, I thank you for this day. I thank you for your goodness and your faithfulness, even in a vessel of clay. God, I pray that you would move us to repentance. God, that you would give us a taste for the glory of Jesus Christ. That you would satisfy us in the morning with your steadfast love. God, may you be exalted in our minds as you are in all creation. It's in the name of Jesus Christ that I pray. Amen.